You know, if I think about my burnout, it was a sudden crash and falling down the stairs. I had blood in my hair when I woke up, and my first instinct was to search for my laptop. I didn't check if I was okay. I wasn't worried about, you know, my head. I was worried about my laptop. That was for me a a wake-up call. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I am super excited about today's episode um, as we are going to talk with a leading global expert on the link between well-being and sustainable high performance. Their philosophy being that a better life leads to better performance and that we should all be looking to optimize performance rather than maximize performance, all of which resonates with me, particularly post-pandemic, and I suspect resonates with most of our senior leaders. I think this has been the crux of what we all learned in the last year. I think of all these conferences and Zooms I've been on with chief executives, it's about sustaining the well-being uh, with performance and how do they, you know, we're at the edge, the energy level, the the stress of continuing to try and perform with all this uncertainty is pretty brutal. So I think we're spot on. And I, I think this is the biggest issue we face right now as leaders. Not just as leaders, I can say as working moms, um, I have certainly found that life post-pandemic um, has even more pressure. You still have uh, the same desire to perform at work, except all the fun bits of work are taken out. There is no social interaction. It's Zoom after Zoom. Uh, we've had months of homeschooling, which for me is the definition of hell, um, as it is for my son, by the way, as well. And we're all spending so much time at home that that fridge constantly needs to be stocked. And, and that's another thing on the, on the to-do list. And so I've found myself, um, as well as many of my working mom friends, have found themselves um, on the edge of that cliff probably too often in the last 18 months. And so I am very curious to learn from our guests and how we can uh, stop that from happening. Clark, tell us who we are going to be talking with. Our guest today is Anastina Hinsa, the CEO of Hinsa Performance. Hinsa Performance is a coaching company that works with clients ranging from Formula One drivers, Olympic athletes, to top CEOs and leaders, entrepreneurs, and politicians to help them achieve sustainable high performance. Again, this getting to the edge of the cliff, as we all are, as you said, but still performing and, and best we can. Anastina, welcome to Redefiners. Let's get started. Um, I would like to start at the beginning, if we may. Uh, your father founded Hinsta Performance after his experience as an orthopedic surgeon um, back in the 90s when you guys were living in Ethiopia. Can you tell us a little bit about his experiences there and how it led to his early philosophy and how that's ultimately led to Hinsta Performance today? Thank you, Nana Zab. That, that's a long story. I'll try and make it short. Um, so 
my father, he, w- he was an orthopedic surgeon, as you mentioned, but he was also, you know, fanatic about sports. He loved sports. Before he became a surgeon, he wanted, his original plan was become an ice hockey player. Unfortunately, his father did not quite agree with that career plan. Wasn't really a career back then. Um, and he ended up with medicine, um, but with a particular interest and passion for sports. So during our time in Ethiopia, he ended up actually working a lot with very, you know, underprivileged communities, um, but also with, you know, top athletes, elite athletes, long distance runners. One of the things that he, he kind of, that struck him was, you know, you know, these are incredible runners. Um, and it's not just about their genes and high altitude training. There's something else to it. He got to work really closely, um, in particular with one, uh, one of the best runners of all time, uh, Haile Gebrselassie, who, who really inspired him to think about, you know, performance in a different way. Um, that's when he realized that for Haile, his, his performance was really, my father used to say, it was the byproduct of living a holistic, you know, holistic life. Um, and that was particularly powerful, uh, when, when you, when he faced setbacks. So, um, there was one moment that, um, really kind of inspired my father, which was around the Athens Olympics, uh, when Hyrule was having problems with his Achilles tendon and it turned out he had to be operated. At that time, you know, it's a pretty high stakes, high stakes operation. And, um, my father was understandably a bit nervous. And what Hyla said to him when they were literally entering the operating theater was, you know, doctor, chill out. It's just running. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you think about that for just a second, you know, you're the world's best long distance runner about to enter the operating theater, your whole career at stake. And you tell the surgeon who's about to cut you open, you know, cut your Achilles tendon open that, you know, chill out. It's just running. That's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my father realized that, yeah, for Haile, you know, running was his passion. It, 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 is, it was absolutely what he loved, but it was not his whole life. It was not his whole identity. And I think that was sort of uh, one of the kind of founding principles um, of the Hensa philosophy, you know, holistic health and well-being as a foundation for a more balanced life and better performance. Balance and performance. So now you're, you're Hensa to performance. Tell us about what's the redefining moment for you. I think you were in the in the strategy consulting business, and now you're in this business. What was your redefining moment? So uh, my my redefining moment was actually a pretty brutal, you know, <laughs> stop, if you will. Um, I literally hit the wall quite early into my career. Actually, I was working in in strategy consulting. I actually really enjoyed it. I really loved it. I got to work with incredible people, travel around the world solving complex problems, et cetera, et cetera, all things that I, I really enjoyed. Um, I was also not living according to any any of our principles or, or philosophies in terms of looking after myself. I actually found my Fitbit from the time and I was sleeping an average of 4.3 hours per night on weekdays, mm-hmm. which was, you know, with hindsight, it's just, it's horrendous. Um living out of hotel, mini bars, all that jazz. There was one November morning uh, when I was running down the stairs in our apartment to catch a taxi and I fainted in the staircase, rolled down the stairs, woke up at the bottom. Uh, I had blood in my hair when I woke up and my first instinct was to search for my laptop. Mm. 
I didn't check if I was okay. I wasn't worried about, you know, my head. I was worried about my laptop. And when I think about it right now, that's, that's, it's almost embarrassing, but it would, that was for me a, a wake up call. I, I took some time off, obviously. It was a, it was a pretty severe burnout that I went through, but it was about redefining a lot of the ways in which I worked. It was going back to, it was going back to my values in the sense that, you know, what are the things that actually matter to me? What are the things that I want to hold on to minimum in order to be able to do my job, in order to be able to actually perform at work? And, you know, that was, I actually don't think that we need to look at well-being and performance as something opposite or mutually exclusive. It's, it's actually to the contrary. When you are feeling well, when your brain is working as it should, not, not like super sleep deprived, but actually, you know, thinking clearly, you're, you're better at your job. In the Zoom world we're in, lots of exhaustion, lots of requirements for performance. People are trying to figure out, can I have well-being and perform? Do you think you have to get to a burnout stage to be able to find this balance of well-being and high performance? Oh, oh God. I, you know, that is our mission so that not everyone has to go through that. Um, I think one of the challenges um, with, with burnout in particular, and especially when you talk about burnout in the context of high performance, when you talk about burnout in the context of leadership positions or, you know, uh, jobs that require us, um, you know, to perform at a high level, um, the challenge is that a lot of the high performers are actually also at a higher risk. Um, because we are, you know, blessed and cursed with the, uh, with incredible ability to focus, um, resilience, uh, you know, just able to push a little bit longer, a little bit harder and until we hit that wall. And when we are in that sort of execution mode, when we are just pushing, you know, zoom after zoom, et cetera, et cetera, what happens is that we actually tend to also block all the warning signals that our bodies are trying to send us. You know, if I think about my burnout, it was a sudden crash and falling down the stairs. But in reality, there were a lot of signals before that. Um, had I stopped and listened to myself, had I stopped and, you know, listened to my body, my body was screaming at me, trying to, trying to tell me to stop and slow down. And I think one of the challenges that we have and, you know, what we try to do is, you know, help individuals become a little bit more aware of those warning signals. You become a little bit more edgy, a little bit less patient, <laughs> whatever it is. Maybe it is something that you pick, pick up an old habit that you used to have, like smoking or drinking. It could be, uh, you know, physical, stomach aches, headaches, um, you know, tense neck, uh, or it could be even, you know, psychological. Anastina, can I ask what you actually changed? Your, your story resonates so deeply with me. I spent the first 15 years of my career in strategy consulting. And like you, I loved it because you learn so much and you travel the world and you see so much. Um, and exactly as you said, that those warning signs, as I look back, were there many times over those 15 years. I was the one that was often crying under my desk at 10 o'clock at night in the office um, the real warning sign for me was one night um, I was on a long assignment in Paris. Our office was in a beautiful place in Place Vendôme. It was sort of 10.30 at night. I was walking from Place Vendôme to the hotel, which was like a 10-minute walk. And as I was crossing the square, I deliberately tried to go slightly slowly. And I remember distinctly thinking, I kind of wish that car would hit me, not badly so I would get seriously hurt, but badly enough so that I would actually have a couple of weeks in hospital 
just recuperating and not working. And that was when I thought, okay, something's wrong. I'm not sure I was successful in actually finding that balance and making it ultimately sustainable. Can I ask you specifically what you changed? What, what, What changed for you to then come back where you were then happier? I would be lying if I told you that I had discovered, you know, the perfect balance right now. I actually think, you know, perfect balance is a complete myth. It doesn't exist. It's more about like, it's more like a balancing act that we're all going through in life. Um, However, there were a couple of concrete things. And I think the most important for me was kind of uh, reclaiming my mornings. Um, so I used to start every single morning, especially now that I work, uh, across many different time zones, that still is the case. Sometimes you start your morning in, in a zoom meeting or a telco or flipping through emails or, you know, your inbox is essentially someone's, someone else's agenda or to do list, Right. So for me, um, it was reclaiming my mornings so that I would have the beginning, um, to really sort of take time for myself, you know, actually enjoy my you know, be it my morning run or be my yoga session or do my, you know, read, read my newspaper. If I'm tired, just read my newspaper in peace. Then after that, having a little bit of time to think about, hey, what are the things, what's the one thing that I actually need to get done today? Mm. You know, what are the other couple of priorities that I need to kind of be looking for during this, this week maybe? And, you know, hey, these are, these, this is the most important meeting that I need to attend to. So I don't look at my cell phone before I've taken a shower. And even just a shower time is like a, it's my mini break. It's my yeah. micro break, uh, which gives me a little bit of time to reflect. A lot of great ideas come to you in the shower. Yeah. I, and I think the key is, as you said, realizing that you need that recovering time and not feeling guilty during it. Yes. Yes. Because I think one of the, um, so one of the things that we lose when we are chronically stressed. So stress in itself, by the way, not negative at all. A natural reaction that actually helps us perform. But when it becomes chronic, that's when it gets dangerous. And when we are stressed and sleep deprived, um, mm. we, we lose our ability to, you know, decide what's actually important and what's not important to react to. Can we maybe take a, a, a step back? Can you, uh, Hints of Performance is based on a model called the circle of life, which I think has sort of seven elements to it. Can you talk us a little bit about that model and the philosophy behind it. How do we optimize as opposed to maximize? So the model was created originally by my father. If you imagine like a circle in front of you, there are six elements, physical activity, nutrition, sleep and recovery, biomechanics, mental energy, and general health. The idea with those elements is that they're all interconnected. Another important element of that circle is what's in the middle, and and that's what we call the core. Mm -hmm. Um, The core is really about three questions. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you want? And are you in control of your life? And they may sound like super, super simple questions, but they're actually incredibly hard to answer. Do you ask yourself those questions regularly? I do ask myself those questions regularly. And I think it's also important that we ask them regularly because they do also, the answers also change, you know, uh, depending on on where you are in life, your answers will change. Mm-hmm. It really is about, am I spending my time my, and my energy according to my values? And I think that's that's sort of the, that's a difficult question to answer. Can you go back to optimizing performance versus maximizing? Because that's, for for people listening to this podcast, they're like, okay, wh- what am I supposed to be doing, particularly in this world uh, on the edge of the cliff? So optimizing versus maximizing really, you know, if we think about it, um, a lot of us are 
living our life in a way where we try and maximize every single area for our lives. And as you talked about, you know, work this being a hard time for working mothers. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and, and, you know, we're trying to be the perfect parents at home. Uh, we have super demanding jobs where we need to perform. At the same time, we try to be the loving partner, you know, husband, wife, whatever that, you know, the, the person that our loved ones deserve. Uh, we try to have an active social life. At the same time, we've seen so many CEOs and executives, uh, who are doing like, you know, they're, they're semi-athletes, like semi-professional athletes, uh, training like crazy for their triathlons or marathons or uh, whatnot. It's really, you know, that idea of pushing yourself to the limit in every single area of your life um, and versus thinking about, you know, what are the things that you are actually optimizing for? For an athlete, it's pretty simple. Okay, I want to be the world champion. And then you optimize the rest of your life to support that one goal. Uh, for most of us, quote unquote, normal people, it's not quite that simple. We have multiple different goals uh, in our lives. But the idea is that we're not demanding perfection or maximizing our performance in every single area. Instead, we're trying to optimize across those different areas. We'll be right back with Anastina. But first, a quick word from Amy Williamson, Managing Director in our Sydney office as she emphasizes how employer empathy can help improve the well-being and retention of people in your organization. The great resignation, the great rethink, the great reshuffle, whatever you call it, we're living through a period of job change unlike any time in history. One of the key reasons why employees change jobs is stress and overall well-being. So what exactly is well-being? At Russell Reynolds Associates, we define it as the overall mental, physical, emotional, and economic health of your employees. And the current state of employee well-being is not looking good. 84% of employees in the US reported at least one workplace factor that negatively impacted their mental health in 2021. 50% of employees, including senior leaders and CEOs, left their jobs for mental health reasons. So what can you do to help stem the tide of employee turnover? First, recognize that your employee is your first customer. Leaders must prioritize employee growth and wellness in order for people to feel supported. Second, focus on motivation in and outside of work. Go beyond the basics of compensation and title and focus on more holistic factors such as purpose, flexibility, physical and mental wellness support and relationship building to better connect with your people. Third, lead with empathy in order to increase the engagement, retention and innovation of your people while helping them to better juggle the demands of their personal, family and work obligations. To learn more about how you can improve the well-being of your employees and help them thrive in today's talent landscape, go to russellreynolds.com insights. And now back to our discussion with Anastina. We've read that the Hinsa-supported Formula One drivers won 98% of the races in the past seven seasons, 11 world championships. So talk about their maximizing and optimizing performance. And how do you help such focused success uh, from a performance from this model? So it's the same model still. It's the same model that applies. And uh, it's, you know, obviously 
it's a little bit different for an athlete than it is for an executive. Um, there is a lot more emphasis on sort of uh, marginal gains in terms of physical performance, in terms of mental performance, which actually is more important than the physical performance in terms of making the difference at the top, which I do think applies for executives as well. So not just thinking about these incredible, you know, athletes as athletes, but thinking about them as human beings. You know, who are you uh, when you are no longer a Formula One driver? Who are you? What are the what are the things that are important to you when you are no longer at the you know at the track on the paddock? And I think those those questions are really important to ask, and hopefully early on into your career. Um, and that's because that is the strength and it will also help you then you know bounce back from setbacks because they're inevitable for every one of us including including um including the athletes when we talk about setbacks uh i actually spent a lot of time uh on four one sailboat racing across the atlantic and i, I we we often say that 90 percent of the performance is before the start line which is about preparation and, and the team interactions but if things go wrong, performance obviously gets affected. We at one point blew out one of our key sails halfway across the North Atlantic. And then you knew you couldn't win. You couldn't come in first. Doesn't mean we couldn't do well. And we suddenly realized we weren't going to maximize. We needed to optimize how we would do to perform as a team and pull it back together. Lots of similarities for me as a chief executive in teams. How do you look at crisis moments or, or moments that, that impact that are unexpected about executive performance to sustain performance through, through trial or problems? If we, if we try and make it concrete, if we think about, you know, COVID has been, uh, COVID has been a good example for us, right? Especially from if, you, from, if you think about leading in a crisis, I mean, there is, this has been definitely a prolonged crisis, prolonged uncertainty with the added challenge of trying to lead your team remotely, not being really physically there to see what's going on. I mean, it has been, as a CEO, I can say it has been tiring even for me. Um, and I think there it does go back to that idea of well-being, looking after yourself as a foundation for that sustainable high performance. It does go back to really, really back to the basics, um, you know, put your own life vest on first um, type of basics. And I think that's, um, it's really easy to forget because um, it's, as a leader, it's not just about you. It is about the whole kind of company. It's about all these people and all their livelihoods. And I think for many of us, and, and maybe this is something that has actually changed during COVID as well, because it's. Uh, I think there used to be this narrative that we had about these super CEOs and super executives who would just, you know, push through with, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. and the golden hours and whatnot. And I, I think we're slowly starting to realize that that really doesn't doesn't hold. We actually do need that well-being for ourselves too. You actually need to look after yourself first. That is a priority. Clark, I actually have a question for you. It's funny what we're talking about people who are perceived to sort of have everything sorted, right? The personal life, work. Um, and Anastina, at least from my perspective, Clark appears exactly as one of those people, you know, a CEO who everyone loves and, and has everything sorted. Have you ever had one of those moments, Clark, um, as, as CEO? Oh my gosh! The question is, how many of them have I had? But uh, and we have four, we have four children uh, in four years, so there's a lot of them. But I can remember at one point you talk about this uh, 5 a.m. Superman, Superwoman executive. I flew from Latin America to a management committee meeting, an offsite that we had in Stockholm, 
uh, and and I thought, you know, I can handle anything. I was really, really, really tired, and I was kind of, I got in a bad mood, um, and I hadn't realized I was bringing the whole room down because they're like, oh my god, if Clark's in a bad mood, something's wrong with the company. He's not telling us. And at lunch the second day, one of my most trusted colleagues pulled me aside. He said, Murph, what is your problem? What are you angry about? Because you're bringing the whole room down, and this meeting sucks. Like, get a grip, start smiling, and, and give some positive energy. Like, whatever your problem is, get over it. I had no idea. And my own personal exhaustion gives the physical signals as a leader that everyone thought something was wrong with the company, and it was I was burned out. I was fried. Obviously, I've never forgotten it, but it, oh, it happens. I had no idea. Thank goodness he told me. So I, I have another question to ask then, Anastina. Here we are, 2021, um, sitting openly talking about stress and burnout and mental health. It wasn't always the case. And I have another personal story to share that probably goes back to 2004, 2005, where my boyfriend at the time and I were both working in this strategy consulting firm. We had both been promoted to engagement manager, which is probably one of the most stressful roles um, in consulting, because ultimately the delivery of the, of the project lies on your shoulders. And um, he was having a particularly hard time with the pressure working in financial services with a not so understanding senior partner. And the senior partner didn't see the signs. And while my boyfriend tried to talk about it, the firm just wasn't receptive. And, and the ending was quite sad because here was a very bright, um, you know, previously happy, high-achieving 28-year-old who in the mornings would sit in his bed crying his eyes out because he couldn't actually decide what clothes to pick um, to wear that day, what shirt to pick to wear that day, and what to have for breakfast. Um, I like to think, you know, 15 years on, we're in a different place. But are we? I know companies talk about it, but are companies actually addressing it and doing something about um, the increased stress and, and pressures of, of potential burnout that we're all under? I would love to tell you that it's completely changed. I think it's changing, okay. and, and, but the change takes time. And I think it's, you know, what you described sounds, sounds so familiar, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's a really difficult situation to be in. Um, I think slowly, the first step is to recognize it and to start talking about it, which I think is fantastic. And we're starting to realize that, you know what, in a way, burnout is actually overusing your strengths, mm -hmm. overusing that passion, that drive, that, you know, incredible resilience, that ability to focus, just pushing too hard for too long. That's when burnout happens. And it actually puts high performers at a higher risk. However, I think, you know, Clark, what you said about like you as a leader creating this you know, your behavior actually having a cascading effect. And we cannot, I think one one kind of challenge is that we often think of wellness or well-being in isolation as, you know, something that we put on top, you know, an initiative that we give the HR to run. Instead, it should be something that is integral to your business and your strategy. It links to your leadership. It links to, um, it links to your culture. And it is sort of my, my challenge to, you know, leaders and CEOs are you ready to lead that cultural change? Because I think that's what it requires. Anastina, let's take it from the institutional to the, to the individual. What advice do you give specific? Because behavior change is hard. So for these driven, passionate leaders, what, what's the specific advice to leaders that they should change as individuals and that it can stick? 
Fantastic question. And and again, I wish there was like a, a silver bullet to it all. Um, it is, um, I think the first thing is about linking it back to the things that actually matter to you. Why do you want to create this change? The second thing uh, is about, you know, these driven, passionate individuals. I remember myself after my burnout, I had this idea of, I will change my entire life. Here are all the things I'm going to work on. Uh, I will start eating better, sleeping better, exercising more. I will do my meditations, X, Y, Z. And obviously that's completely unsustainable. You need to start with, start with one thing, start with one change, start small. The final thing that I think kind of links to what you, Nanas, were asking earlier, like Clark has everything under control or seems to have everything under control. And in reality, it most often isn't so. Um, there's an interesting study about the people who seem to have, seem to exercise the most self-control actually deploy it the least. So instead of, you know, having to make these self-control decisions every day, what you do is you modify your environment to support change. So if there is a habit that you want to create, if there is a change you want, that you want to make stick, instead of making it something that you need to decide to do every day, um, you modify your environment to, you know, make it easier, make the good things easier to do or the bad things harder to do. Like for me, um, social media, mm -hmm. uh, really a, a thing that I used to during my consulting days, I, I would, uh, yeah, I was sleeping very little, but in fact, uh, part of that, those hours lost were hours on, on Facebook, uh, catching up with my friends who I didn't see in real life. And what I had to do was literally to, you know, delete the app and encrypt my passwords in order to make it really hard for myself to go back. And uh, that really helped. Do you know, that's exactly my downfall. It's that sort of when I've finished my work, put my son to sleep, and I have that hour to myself before bedtime, and the hour sometimes turns to a bit more of either watching Netflix or going on Instagram, doing something completely mindless to switch off that ends up being two hours or three hours. And you know what, in terms of recovery, mindless recovery can be good sometimes too. We also need that. But yeah, in terms of recovery, actually, uh, you know, downtime is, is important. We actually do need that. Your organization talks a lot about um, organizational resilience. I don't quite know what that means. I know sort of resilience, obviously, in individuals is super important, particularly in terms of dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity. But how do you make sure that an organization is resilient? An organization is made up of individuals, right? You know, there is organizational resilience in terms of, you know, supply chains and whatnot. What we talk about is individuals. Okay. And an organization is made up of those individuals. So when we talk about organizational resilience, it actually goes back to, you know, uh, each individual um, being able to, you know, stretch when we need to stretch. And that, you know, stretch time, that mission period is followed by recovery, sufficient recovery so that, you know, we can recharge our batteries. And in athlete terms, what happens is actually super compensation. So after a stretch period, when you lose, when you deplete your resources, you actually get to a point during recovery when you start gaining resources and, you know, you get past your starting baseline. So you increase your you know, increase your abilities. It goes back to making sure that you have um, the organizational structures to support sustainable behavior change, um, to support well-being, because in the end, you need both. How, how do you scale this and scale what you do? And we, we're talking about the institutions as well as leaders themselves. How does a leader scale this from an institutional impact? 
starts by role modeling. I think that's the number one thing, and it's the number one kind of uh, number one success factor in any every single organization program that we run. Um, and then, of course, like when you talk about sort of. Uh, when we talk about coaching, <laughs> when we talk about what we do, of course, there's an app for it too. So yes, we do, do use digital. I'm personally really kind of passionate about how digital can be used to enhance and augment sort of unique human skills and capabilities, how it can be used to kind of facilitate those discussions, how it can be used to, you know, enable uh, behavior change and, and help us make that behavior change stick. You read our mind in, <laughs> in today's world. Is there an app for this? What's the digital way to enable this? So we have our own app that we use um, to scale our coaching. It's called The Better Life. The Better Life. Fantastic. Well, we uh, we end these podcasts each time with some rapid fire questions. You don't get a moment to think. You got to react right away. Um, so a couple of questions in a row, if we can ask the first one. When when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A doctor. Here's the second one. Um, where is the place where you feel most at home or most at peace? Oh, God. Um <laughs> In a, most at home, like the place I go back to, uh, Jima, Ethiopia. Okay. What's the best thing that's happened to you this month, personal or professional? It's going to happen tomorrow. I'm seeing my husband after four months of being separated. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, COVID. COVID for you. Oh, wow. Um, what's your favorite movie or TV binge watch? I suspect you won't be doing that this coming weekend. <laughs> um. I actually, I have to admit, I have had to delete my Netflix <laughs> because I would totally binge watch everything. So I'm, that's that's one of my habit tricks. Uh, I think we know the answer to this from what you said, but when do you do your best thinking? Morning, afternoon, or evening? <laughs> morning. <laughs> morning. Um, and then the last one, um, who is a redefiner that you admire? I got to say my father. He passed away many years ago, but he continues to be the source of inspiration. And, uh, you know, I'm personally extremely grateful to be continuing what he started. Well, that, that is the inspiration. That is the, the, the circle of a better life right there. Um, it's come full circle for, for you and for the company and for us. And we want to say an enormous thanks. Uh, we need to start role modeling, our, the two of us right here, right now. And we're super appreciative of the insights, the advice, and, and the leader you are. Thanks for helping redefine a lot of performance. Formula One to the boardroom. Well done. Thank you, Anastina. Thanks so much. All the best. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time. Do you have a question on leadership, career development, joining a board, or other topics you'd like to ask one of our consultants? Well, now's your chance. Email us at redefiners at russellreynolds.com for an opportunity to have your question answered on the podcast by one of our experts. We'll see you next time on Redefiners.